This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. I always get a little worried when there's a shortage of bullets at gun shops. Not because I'm a big gun person myself, but it worries me because of what it says about our country. Newsweek just ran a story that asks why there's an ammo shortage in America. The answer? People are buying a hell of a lot of ammunition, and suppliers are struggling to keep up with demand. Why so many bullets? I mean, we know that 2020 is a crap year, right? There's two, three, maybe four major national crises happening at once, depending on how you slice it, and tensions are high. Once in a while, the national story is also the Virginia story, and this is one of those weeks. Our nation seems to be careening towards some kind of tipping point. It's unclear what's going to happen after this year's election, and that is scary as hell. Evidently, some people are hoarding bullets, I guess as sort of an insurance policy in case of social collapse. When I started this podcast, I really did not expect to say things like insurance policy in case of social collapse, and yet here we are. At every turn, Donald Trump has fanned the flames of division, anxiety, and social unrest. And in recent weeks, he has announced his plans to stage a coup if he doesn't win the election. I am not overstating things when I use the word coup. I've studied regimes in Latin America and elsewhere in the Global South. This has happened in lots of places. A country holds a free election, and a clear majority votes in the opposition party. The strongman refuses to concede, refuses to peacefully transfer power to the other party. He makes up claims about non-existent voter fraud. He calls for far-right paramilitary supporters to intimidate or do violence against the opposition. He enlists puppet judges to rule in his favor. He tries to get the military brass on his side. That is a coup. Does any of it sound plausible? Could it happen here? How would the military leadership based here in Virginia respond? Basically, top generals and admirals and whatever at the Pentagon have let it be be known very clearly that they do not want to put the military in any kind of position of uh, control or forcing things after a contested election. There have been plenty of people in the military in saying Trump is dangerous, and this is entirely possible. This hasn't really been dealt with before. It's uncharted waters. That's Peter Galaska. He's a journalist based in the Richmond area and a regular here on Bold Dominion. And he's right. The United States has a much, much longer tradition of democracy than other countries. And our military pledge an oath to the Constitution, not any one leader. But could Trump try to pull it off anyway? We'll hear more from Peter later in the show. But first, we come back to that piece about far-right paramilitary supporters. At the first, and now infamous, presidential debate a couple weeks ago, Donald Trump refused to denounce white supremacy. Instead, he told groups like the Proud Boys to, quote, stand back and stand by. On the same day, the FBI released an intelligence report that warned of an immediate extremist threat from far-right militia groups. Our first conversation this week is with Emily Gorsinski. She's a data scientist and activist, and was involved in the anti-racist counter-protest to the 2017 Unite the Right rally here in Charlottesville. Emily has used her data science skills to help identify and track members of white supremacist organizations. She created the website First Vigil to track their court trials and convictions. I spoke with her about the growing threat of white supremacy and what Trump's refusal to denounce these groups might mean for the months ahead. Well, I think what it means is that it is a, uh, a tacit permission to uh, continue the elevating or, or raising sort of the tenor of the violence in America. This is permission to go out and intimidate communities. It's permission to 
uh, go out in the street and um, front white supremacy and encourage terror. And this is, in some sense, uh, a very deliberate uh, sort of attempt to, to raise the threshold of, of acceptability um, with the natural impact that when that threshold gets raised, the likelihood of violence and terror also gets raised. We have uh, elections coming right up, of course. What, what could Election Day and Election Week look like with these groups involved? Worst case scenario is that we're going to see um, election chaos uh, where things like people being purged from the voter rolls is going to happen. And um, this is going to commingle with this sort of unofficial election security threat um, that, is, that is taking place. Um, there's also lots of opportunities for confrontations outside the polling places, um, threats of violence, um, displays just outside of the legal boundaries of like heavily armed militias and things like that. You know, it's, it's impossible to predict an act of terrorism. And I wouldn't expect something like that to be at a polling place. But I do expect that there will be, um, that we will see violent, violent encounters. I mean, what groups are we talking about here, uh, both that you've tracked and that, that could be a, th- a real threat to democratic elections? Yeah, so we see that there's a lot of these sort of militia groups uh, floating around. Uh, there's the sort of nascent Boogaloo movement, um, as well explain, as explain Explain what Boogaloo means, if you don't mind. I don't know if everybody sure. gets what that is. Back in the 80s, there was a sequel to, to the sort of um, hip-hop movie Breakin', and it was uh, Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. And this sort of uh, silly term has long been in sort of the, the, the internet lingo um, to refer to something that is like a, a, a subsequent event, a, a second coming type of thing. And for a few years, it has been referred to uh, in extremism circles uh, to refer to a second civil war. So civil war two electric boogaloo. Um, Within the past year or so, this really started to catch on because these these groups, these far right and white supremacist groups like to use some coded language uh, to refer to these things. And so there's a number of terms that refer to what they believe to be a coming civil or race war. So um, some people, like if you follow militia groups, you'll find that they refer to the zombie apocalypse and that is a code word for civil war. They'll also refer to SHTF, so when stuff hits the fan, um, and then also the Boogaloo, um, which has become this sort of code word for the Second Civil War in America. So these groups are actually advocating for the Second Civil War. Groups like, what, the the Proud Boys is the one that got mentioned at the debate, but others too? Um, Some of them are. Some of them uh, are advocating and and actively seeking out to create a second civil war. Some of them merely believe that it is an inevitability due to the uh, widening rift in society or what is perceived to be a widening rift in society. Uh, This this concept is not new. Um, This is sort of fundamental to the prepper mentality. Um, But what's happening is that this is stepping out into the mainstream. And we're seeing these groups uh, showing up at protests. We're seeing these groups showing up at election events, at campaign rallies and things like that. And they always say that they're there to keep the peace, but really what they're there to do is to project their vision of what 
America looks like and their vision of America is an America that is ruled by force by white men. I mean, their vision is just simply that authoritarian, bald-faced? Uh, in some cases, it's authoritarian. In some cases, it is a, a reinforcement or a um, ratcheting up of the status quo, which is um, that we live in a society that is on paper egalitarian, but in practice is not. And the sort of undercurrent that, that a lot of these groups oppose is the idea that progressive society is eroding the power structures that white male people have in this country. Um, so this is fundamental to everything from the extremely white nationalist myths about white genocide to uh, some of the things like um, activism against affirmative action or you know, some of the, the battles that are happening in the courts right now around uh, gay rights and trans rights, um, the religious equality, all of these things. It's an effort by people who inherit or who uh, exist in a position of power and privilege um, to retain that or to prevent that power and privilege from being threatened by other people who are simply trying to assert their legal given rights. Ultimately, um, there's you know degrees of fascism, and all of these all of these tend to be uh, some degree of fascism to some extent. Um, you know, the Proud Boys are an explicitly fascist group. They won't say it, but if you look at their messaging and and what and you look at their actions, there's no way to to come to any other conclusion. By comparison, some of these sort of quote unquote anti-government militias, if you look at their, their mission statement or their values, it's hard to say that they're authoritarian because they purport to be anti-government. But when the anti-government people are on the side of the police beating up the black protesters, there's a, a sort of a rift that starts to form between their stated values and the values that they act upon. And that's um, this is a classical pattern that we see in, in proto-authoritarian states, uh, sort of when militias or paramilitaries uh, stop worrying about tyranny of the state and start calling uh, the behaviors of the people tyranny. That is, um, generally speaking, a sign that uh, not just that you're on the way or that you're heading downhill, but that you've already you know, stepped over the ledge and you haven't realized that you're falling yet. You're a data scientist who follows these organizations. How, how have you tracked these far-right groups? I think that one thing that you learn being a data scientist is you have to pay exquisite attention to detail um, and you have to understand how probability works. And so for me, when I'm tracking these groups, I'm looking at patterns. I'm looking for patterns in what they're posting, what they're doing, who they're meeting with, who they're acting with. And from there, I can start to assemble a picture. If you see um, somebody posting something or, or you know, uh, somebody uh, acting in a certain way, like you probably don't know their name. And it's not like I have some facial recognition software that I can, you know, throw against a massive, you know, federal law enforcement database. But there's little clues as to, you know, what they're wearing or what their tattoos are or how they wear their facial hair, things like that. And when you pay attention to these things, who they're meeting with, who they're, who they're hanging out with, where they show up, you can start to understand a little bit more about these movements and start to track um, how these groups um, intersect and, and play off one of each other and even share membership. You have to be able to see the things that are sort of not in focus, both figuratively and literally. 
Yeah. What have been results of this kind of work? Um, we've exposed, uh, well, I should say I've exposed uh, a number of white supremacists, uh, some of whom were in the military, uh, who have since been removed from the military, some of whom were um, community members or civil servants, teachers, things like that. Um, Anti-fascists generally have exposed dozens, if not hundreds of uh, far-right actors who are partaking in these internet forums and advocating violence and terrorism and using racist language and um, talking about the ways that they demean the, the people of color in their lives and, and Jewish people and, um, and queer people and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think that um, this has had a, a significant impact on our ability to actively come together as communities um, to, to form um, coalitions against hate. And that's really the strongest thing about it, right? This is, you know, we're not here to, to, to ruin anyone's life. We're not here to send the mob after somebody. We're here to empower communities to understand, hey, that woman at the farmer's market, she's recruiting teenagers for a white nationalist terrorist organization. Now you know, now go do something about it. And that do something about it has historically meant things like petitions to get them removed from the farmer's market or fired from their jobs or, or whatever, right? We, we set rules for what behaviors we think we should have in a society. And some of those rules are encoded by law and some of those rules are, are encoded in unwritten social contracts. And it's up to us to enforce those social contracts because if you don't enforce them, they become worthless. And that's how you get Nazis. I, I know you were involved in some way with the anti-racist organizing efforts around Charlottesville in August 2017. Uh, take me through what you did there and how that relates to your work. So I did a lot of work with a lot of folks that were trying to engage with the media fairly actively uh, in the summer of 2017. So one thing that we had seen in protests um, was that we didn't really understand the message of the counter-protesters. We put together a group of people. So there was a bunch of us in the community that came together and said, you know, let's change this. Let's be active about this. So we did a lot of work and we reached out to journalists and we and, and um, really tried to tell the story from our perspective before the event happened. And what that did was that gave those reporters uh, contacts and sources on the ground gave them context for what was happening, and it allowed us to, to shape the response that was seen in the media. So this is something that um, I don't think many people had done in the protest movements before. And to this day, Charlottesville is still used as a, uh, a warning sign against the Republican Party and against Donald Trump. I think that that part of that was our legacy. So that's where I got the idea of doing First Vigil, um, and also just trying to, to capture this. Like I wanted to get away from the, the, the flash in the pan type of uh, media environment and, and make something enduring so that people could really look into these cases and, and learn for themselves what was happening. How much of a threat is, is the combination of, of the Trump regime itself and these right-wing paramilitary groups? How much of a threat are, are they to having an American democracy continue? When you allow armed people to intimidate communities, um, you suppress the voice of that community. And when you suppress the voice of the community, you, you do not have a fully functioning democracy. 
Um, and so that's in the abstract sense, in the concrete sense, I'm not sure which is going to be the worst situation for violence, whether Trump loses or whether Trump wins. Um, because there are a lot of people that are on edge and the fact that we haven't seen a situation devolve into open shootouts yet is a, a slight wonder. I mean, we've seen what happened in Charlottesville. We see, we saw what happened in, in Kinesha. Um, we've seen what happened in Portland. Uh, and it's a matter of time and it's a matter of when, not if. Uh, and the election could be a turning point. The FBI is preparing for it. Every single person I know in the counter-extremism game is extremely worried about what happens. And there is no consensus on which would be worse, um, a win or a loss. What is the long-term goal of, of your work? I mean, I'm, I'm just imagining, you know, we, we expose all the white supremacists, society, the, the, the influencers and actors in society who have some say, say, you know what, that's not acceptable. You know, go find another job or whatever. What, what comes next? Uh, how do we make an America work and come back from the precipice? I think we need to, to eradicate white supremacy and we need to start by stemming the tide that's happening right now. We've seen white supremacist violence increasing year over year for the past several years. Hate crimes since 2016 um, have been on the rise. Um, aside from the Pulse shooting uh, in, what was it, 2016, um, white supremacists have been responsible for the largest terror attacks in the United States over the past several years. So first, we're just trying to, to stop the bleeding. Uh, then we're trying to eradicate the conditions that lead to white supremacy. And in order to eradicate the conditions that lead to white supremacy, we need to be able to talk earnestly about things like race and gender, and sexuality and religion we need to understand our history. We need to come face to face with it and to make conscious efforts to learn from that and to not repeat it. And this is not about trying to project guilt onto men or onto white people or onto whomever. This is about understanding that we have been an imperfect society and we will be an imperfect society, but we have to actively make ourselves into a more perfect society. You know, there's a lot of flaws in, in the American system, the American way of um, uh, American culture, American government. But to me, that's one of the things that has always resonated is that we, um, we wanted to create a system, you know, we wanted to create a more perfect union, not a perfect union, but one that can continually evolve. I think we've stopped evolving. And, you know, we have the, the power, the resources to set the tone of what kind of world we want to see. And we need to go out and do that. Emily Gorsinski is a data scientist, activist, and creator of the website First Vigil, which tracks the trial information of alleged white supremacists. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. In a moment, we're back with journalist Peter Galaska to discuss the possibility of Donald Trump refusing to concede power and what that could mean for Virginia and the nation. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to figure out Virginia state politics? Well, tell them about this show. And then subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, including Democracy in Danger. All over the world, liberal democracy is getting turned upside down. Oh, that sounds familiar from today's episode. Here in the United States in 2020, we're no exception. Can we save democracy and make it work better? 
Join hosts Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadianathan as they talk to leading scholars, writers, and thinkers about the most pressing challenges facing government of, by, and for the people. That's Democracy in Danger, available at virginiaaudio.org. You always have to take political polls with a little grain of salt. But right now, Democratic nominee Joe Biden holds the largest polling leads that we've seen in the 21st century. What happens if he wins the vote, but Trump refuses to concede? We just talked about the uncertainty about what could happen in the streets with paramilitary organizations. There are also a lot of unknowns about what happens in Washington if Trump forces a constitutional crisis. In the second half of the show, we're delving into that question with Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska. Well, it's very, very uncharted territory because this never really has really quite happened. Um, it's very uncertain what uh, the president means and how seriously he can be taken because he often says things that pretends it didn't happen. There was kind of a wake-up call about this, and it happened in May and June of this year when there were protests in Washington, and Trump asked um, you know, for National Guard help from across the country. And you know, it seemed to be kind of a political stunt And what was really strange about that was that um, I think 11 National Guards, I think they were all Republican governor states, because the governors in the states actually are the commanders in chief of their National Guards. So 11 came in. Virginia, by the way, Ralph Northam, the Democratic governor, said no way. But it was all very strange because you have these National Guards people participating or standing by federal police officers who in several cases were were really uh, dispersing protesters who were peaceful. And this includes that uh, sort of infamous scene where, where they dispersed a bunch of protesters in downtown D.C. so that Trump could have a photo op in front of a church, right? Right, at Lafayette Park. And that was really kind of strange. And also National Guard helicopters, two helicopters, actually did something that is very strange. They would fly, hover maybe 45 feet over a crowd so that the downdraft, the wash of the rotors, would create like a tropical storm-like wind which is really something you can uh, imagine happening in a third world coup. What Trump is doing is really crossing lines as far as the governor's duties by constitution and his own political needs. That's the danger. You know, Peter, as as we talk, it it seems frighteningly easy to imagine a scenario in which Trump refuses to leave office even after an election that doesn't go his way. Um, calls up the National Guard exclusively from red states to enforce him getting to stay in office. I mean, how is the description of that scenario different from a a coup or a a low-level civil war? Well, that's the whole point, and that's where you get into strange territory, because basically uh, top generals and admirals and whatever at the Pentagon have let it be, be known very clearly that they do not want to put the military in any kind of position of uh, control or forcing things after a contested election. They've been very, very clear about that. And certainly there have been plenty of people in the military and the intelligence community and other places that have been very strong in saying Trump is dangerous. And this is entirely possible. So, you know, it just depends. I, I just don't, as I say, this hasn't really been dealt with before. It's uncharted waters. I mean, look, Trump could still win the Electoral College. There is the chance of that. But at this point of this recording, polls are not looking very good for that to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. But you you say that, you know, a transition of power would have to happen according to the Constitution. But, I mean, if Mm -hmm. every other constitutional 
norm or rule is being violated along the way the last four years. What's to stop a Trump regime from just saying, yeah, not really? Yeah, well, that's 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 a great question. And, um, you know, just about any other president would, um, you know, say, OK, we've got to abide by what the Constitution says. We took an oath to pack the Constitution. Trump doesn't seem in his really chaotic way of managing things, of, of, of being willing to do that. And of course, with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it just makes things even harder because, you know, you have, you know, early voting, a lot of mail voting. Trump has tried to um, uh, make mail-in voting obviously a topic for fraud, which there hasn't been much evidence of that. And he goes on and on about that. And so I don't know. I mean, it's too late to stop, to stop the election now, uh, I believe. Um, I mean, I've already voted. I voted in person, and I know other people have voted by by mail. But I mean, I just don't know. I mean, as I say, this is a frightening transition. It's going to be a very strange month or several months. On election day, you you mentioned earlier that that Trump has talked about sending election quote unquote observers to polling places around the country, um, sort of trying to get right wing groups and sheriffs uh, who are friendly to Trump to to go show up and observe or intimidate or whatever happens to happen on on election day at those polls what what's the meaning of this in places like virginia i'm not sure because i mean basically as far as poll poll observers in the polling places themselves there are strict rules about how many can be there at one time i mean i know that um oftentimes uh, i voted a, at a methodist church sort of in the country and when i go in to vote um, they're often, you know, partisan people. They're trying to give me their pamphlets, and that's legal within limits. But once you go into the polling place, you're, you're not supposed to be hassled like that. And another thing that Trump has suggested that he might do is call in uh, local sheriffs and local police officers uh, to beef up whatever. The thing is, he doesn't control local sheriff's departments. He doesn't control local police departments. That's not his job. So I don't know what kind of authority he can bring to bear on that legally. Yeah, I think that's the key part is legally, right? I mean, look, yeah. for, for four years, Trump has done everything out of a, a sort of an authoritarian's playbook, you know, the same sort of stuff that authoritarians around the world, whether it's Duterte or Erdogan mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Putin would do in their respective countries. <clears throat> um, there was one other piece that I found interesting, what you're talking about with, if there's a contested election, uh, you know, there, there, there's uh, contestations in either Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or, or, or Florida. Uh, take me through well, more of what the process would look like. Well, from what I've read of it, um, is that the uh, the electors have to follow the popular votes. I think believe the Supreme Court has, has given clear instructions that the electors have to go with the popular vote. And um, but then again, I mean, there are scenarios where um, you know you have a state, you know, legislature somehow maybe Republican led or something somehow putting a, a monkey wrench in this. So it's very unclear. And you know, just given you know Trump's attitudes about you know, getting rid of the coronavirus that he, he's contracted. I mean, he's just making no sense at all. Those are good questions, and it's really not clear what would happen. Peter, you mentioned earlier, and, and we've, we've talked about it over the years uh, that we've known each other, about your time spent working in Russia right? Uh, back in the 1990s. You were there during a coup. Take me through what yeah. that experience was like. Yeah, I was bureau chief for Business Week 
for several years in the 80s and then again in the 90s. And um, in October 1993, October 3rd and 4th, the Soviet Union had already fallen apart. And Boris Yeltsin was the president of the Russian Federation. And he was having a big constitutional problem with the Duma, this legislature that was popularly elected. And things got out of hand very quickly. Um, there had been protests for weeks. Uh, Yeltsin wanted to dissolve the parliament and move on to have quicker reforms on his that he thought should happen. And this legally elected parliament was dragging its feet. Well, one day I was driving home from the country with my family and um, everything had fallen apart. The police were just not there. They're, they're fighting with people. I mean, really strange looking uh, skinhead young men were having automatic weapons carrying around. And pretty soon it erupted into, uh, it was the, the protest was hijacked by um, radicals. Sorry, we called them the Red Browns because they're both radical communists and radical fascists at the same time. And so that's what happened. And it was just like two days of, of intense fighting. Uh, 187 people died and were killed in the official count. Unofficially, it was, they put the figure at more than 2,000. And it was just wild. I mean, a lot of the action helped happen down the par uh, street from my apartment in my news bureau. And I was standing next to a, a tank, a late, late model battle tank several of them as they started shelling the uh, parliament building. And the only thing that really saved Yeltsin was that the army decided to back him. And they ended up crushing, um, you know, the protesters. And um, anyway, it was a, a very, very bizarre and frightening time because here's a country that has control of a lot of nuclear weapons. And you don't even know who's going to be president or who's, who's in charge anymore. And I hope that doesn't happen here. You right. don't want to go through that. No, no. I think uh, we all um, who are listening to this podcast, I think, take for granted sometimes that the rule of law is a thing, that we live in a constitutional republic and that up till now, people who are elected to office follow certain rules and norms. But um, yep. but you start having these conversations and realize that it is a piece of paper and people with power can do what they're going to do with power uh, if they yeah, choose just, to. Um <laughs> One of the things that I, so I've, I've read about uh, coups and predominantly in Latin America and other parts of the global South. And it seems, I mean, first of all, these things typically happen quickly, right? A coup is either successful or it's fought back within <laughs> days, maybe two weeks max. It's all, it's very important who the military sides with, but they don't necessarily side with the um, side that they ideologically agree with the most so much as the side they think is going to win. What happened in Russia? Well, I think there's a, some, something, you know, that even though the, the Soviet or Russian rather military forces has a, has a reputation for being nasty, you can also say they're pros. They're like our military for the most part. They're professionals and they, they don't want to get involved in politics. And they just want to, you know, follow their duties and do what they need to do to protect the country. So I think the military made a very conscious decision saying it's best for our country if, say, I guess Yeltsin prevails. And uh, we have to do this. You're right, though, that the time frame for these things, unless it goes into a protracted civil war, is generally not very long. So, you know, the, the reason I keep bringing this back to Virginia as well is, is the role of a military and the sort of institutional uh, <laughs> you know, force and weapons and power that exists with it. You know, so much of that is based here in Virginia. The people that live and work here in Virginia are the ones who would have a role to play one way or another in stopping or not stopping Possible. Well, I, you're absolutely right. But I think I think one of the things you, ha you have to understand, I think, and I'm not a military law expert, 
Uh, but from what I understand is that the officers and, and troops of the military take an oath to defend the Constitution. They do not take an oath to defend an individual president. And they do have the right, I think, to disobey orders that they consider completely unconstitutional. So, you know, it depends on how they viewed it. What's really critical is how the leadership at the Pentagon, uh, you know, reacts to any any kind of possible coup or election pandering, whatever. Yeah. That's key. And they've indicated that they don't want to do it. So that's probably a plus. Yeah, what does that mean, though? Uh, if the whole thing is contested and everybody who believes Fox News for their, their information, you know, believes it's one thing and the rest of the country believes it's the actual reality, where does that leave the Pentagon? First off, the military has been very worried about Trump for since he's been in office. I mean, that's look how many defense chiefs he's had. And look at the book by um, Bolton. I read that. And look at the General Mathis of the Marines. I mean, he's very, very upfront about his worries about Trump. But you see, my point is that if you have people like that who are professional and powerful and entrenched, they're not going to necessarily go along with what Trump tells them to do if it's clearly wrong. And so I think that is a saving, a potential saving grace. Peter, uh, how do we close this conversation? I don't know. <laughs> um, there's a, there's an election November 3rd, but of course, early voting is happening now all month of October. Um, let's say after this election, through fits and starts and, and uh, difficult shenanigans uh, along the way, Trump eventually does one way or another step down from the office of president. Where does that leave the country? Where does that leave the state of Virginia with uh, such deep schisms between two parts of the electorate? Well, um, I'm not 100 percent sure because most of the Republicans I know, um, they don't really favor Trump, but they won't really go after him. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. And so I, I think there's a, a fair number of people who really would want him going off into the wind, you know, just sort of put him in the rearview mirror. You know, and uh, so I don't know. I don't know how much I think if there is a resolution of this, you know, Trump has done a number of things that are going to have to be fixed. But I don't see it as that onerous a job. I think it will work out. I think Virginia will be fine. I do. I hope so. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. Thanks to him and also to activist Emily Gorsinski for joining us in this week's episode. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Huge thanks, as always, to our producer and editor, Aryan Balu. Find this show online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Keep social distancing, y'all. Talk with you again in two weeks.